morning, Matthew. Uh, Bryce Crocker, Chief Executive Officer of Chevrolet Global. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Bryce, good to see you again. Been a while. How have you been? Has been. Uh, certainly a lot's happened in the markets and for Chevrolet since, so glad to be back on. It has. It's humbling times out there for a lot of companies. Now, you've kind of been through the ravages uh, of the market too, um, uh, and um, how are you feeling about it? Uh, listen, everybody's disappointed. Now, clearly the market hasn't worked for us. The macro has been difficult. Uh, every time I talk to someone about China, um, I'm increasingly concerned, but that's not necessarily the topic of this podcast, as it, except as it pertains to Cobalt. But listen, in terms of where we're at as a company, and what I say to institutional investors is, look, there's no directors have left. There's no executive management of uh, the core team that have also left. And normally when a company goes through a transition like we have where, I mean, without doing the math, the management board, we've probably dusted 50 mil of our own money uh, on a mark-to-market on -market basis. Uh, but equally, nobody's moved on. We're angry, we're disappointed, uh, but we're motivated and eager to recover the uh, share price from where it slipped from and return the company to a better trajectory. Certainly there's, if I, if I step back and like, there's nothing that the portfolio of assets we've acquired, uh, I think I've been on this podcast a number of times with you. So I mean, we've identified geopolitically significant assets in critical minerals. Uh, I mean, and if that thematic's working for us, not against us over the last five years. Now, clearly we didn't foresee Russian invasion of Ukraine and others, but certainly the concept of critical minerals, the concept of a geopolitically complex world, I mean, arguably that's increasing, not decreasing. And the intervention of governments in these industries is also accelerated. So there's nothing wrong with the portfolio of assets we have. Certainly there's there has been uh, balance sheet issues, which we started to address, and we can talk about the initial steps we've taken and what we plan to do moving forwards. And there's also been, I think we're honest with ourselves, there's been missteps in management. So cobalt price didn't work for us, but equally we should have done a better job at executing a capital project on the hill in the United States. Uh, the United States is a difficult jurisdiction to build in today, but equally we should have done a better job as a management team. So I think that we've been reflective, uh, but we're also positive in looking forwards because we've got a great platform uh, and we're looking forwards to being able to realize value for shareholders, uh, albeit off an extraordinarily low base, but that's also an opportunity, I guess, for many of your, of your listeners. Right. Okay. So you it's a real tough one, okay? Because you know, if if I look at what you've been what you've been up to, you are seemingly able to access capital in the market, so you're not cash constrained in that way. Um, you obviously had that Australian super um come in and and, and top up. Um, you know, what was it like 20, 23 percent? That's twenty three percent, correct? Yeah. So that, that that's that that's you know, that's an endorsement, I guess. But then the day, you still got to deliver, and and I'm I'm sort of intrigued by having built up this portfolio of international assets, you know, Finland, Brazil, US, Australia, how do they come together in a small, now small company like this? You know, it have, have you looked at the kind of risk mitigation factors required to have multiple assets in multiple jurisdictions as a whatever, $150 million company? How, do you, how are you going to well, do I it? I think this is, I mean, we were a billion dollar company, now we're not. Um, the balance sheet that we had when we were a billion-dollar company in terms of leverage was arguably appropriate at a time when Cobalt was $25, $35, $40 and kind of looking as up, moving up. 
what isn't appropriate is once we decrease the value of our equity in the consequence of the cobalt price and we've had to adjust the balance sheet. We haven't been, I mean, we've been honest with ourselves and honest with the shareholders that we weren't able to adjust as quickly as we wanted to for a number of reasons. Um, but we've kind of talked that. I've spoken around those uh, with regard to Jevoir Finland kind of ad nauseum. Certainly we're at a position now where if you step back, there's, we've got good things going for us. The underlying assets, they're good. We're in 100% of the underlying assets as well. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, we also have unencumbered offtake for each of the assets, with the exception, obviously, of the contractual position in Finland um, for 2020, largely 2023, with our annual sales contracts. That's also good. So it's not like we don't have tools at our disposal. Um, and the way I describe it to you uh, when we were strengthening the balance sheet recently is we've kind of got we've got three core assets, Jevois Finland, uh, so a 6,000-ton cobalt refinery manufacturing business in Finland, one of the most advanced facilities globally, uh, San Miguel Paulista, a nickel cobalt refinery we're restarting in Brazil, and then the only cobalt mine in the United States in Idaho. So I can't, the way I describe it is we've got these three balls. Now, we own 100% of these three balls and we're juggling. And when I spoke to you, uh, I don't believe it was last time, but it would have been, say, late 2022, we had, the intention was that we were going to move each of these assets forward into commercial production. We are going to become a self-sustaining business and we are going to own 100% of each of these assets. Um, we can no longer do that. We don't have the balance sheet. To, to bring all of these assets into production ourselves independently. So what that means is we have to adjust. Uh, we have to adjust the business. And I guess, so the way I describe it is I've got, we've got at Jevoir, we have these three balls and I'm not sure which percentage of each of those balls we'll own to get to a self-sustaining position. But the reality is we need someone to come in. Um, we can no longer do it on, on the back of our own balance sheet. We need partners. We, and that's really what we're focused on now. Uh, because if you look, Jevoir Finland is a is a good business. It's a better business than has been demonstrated, I believe, in the 18 months since acquisition. Uh, we generated $30 million of cash flow in Q2, uh, also associated with a working capital unwind. So that's not a repeatable event. That's a function of the falling cobalt price and also a, a conscious decision on our part to reduce inventories. But we're back to positive EBITDA in Q2. And so we've got one cash flow generating asset. And again, there's not many companies our size that are that have uh, 300 plus US of revenue per year. The so that's generating EBITDA. We also have costs. So we've got holding costs in Idaho. We've got a million dollars a month holding costs for the site. We've got a million dollars a month approximately to service a 12 and a half percent 100 million dollar bond that we used to build the facility. Um, so that's 25 US a year there. Uh, we also have. Uh, half a million dollars a month holding costs in Brazil until we restart there. Uh, we also have a Mercuria facility associated with the Finnish uh, working capital arrangement, with probably another five, and then ballpark another five for corporate GNA across the various offices. So the reality is those two, you have to, it's kind of simple, but you have to generate more cash than you spend. Uh, we've been at a point where the market's been funding us and we've been pushing forwards with an aggressive growth trajectory. And now what we have to do is we have to, uh, certainly, we're all very conscious of uh, further dilution. So now it's stepping back. We've had inbound interest on each of the assets, strong, good inbound interest. And I think it's working with bankers in the next six months to determine what's the appropriate mix between those offers that have come in. And again, 
well, I, do I believe that we'll own 100% of each of the assets in 12 months' time? Absolutely not. It's certainly conceivable that we'll continue to own 100% of one or two or more, or, or one or two. But equally, it's about looking at the, the opportunities we have across each of the operations and determining what's a balanced, correct strategy for the group moving forwards, particularly taking account of what you mentioned, risk, because I think that's where we did make a misjudgment the impact of the cobalt price fall, the impact of having one operating asset concurrent with the impact of a capital cost overrun in Idaho, and obviously the cobalt price fall then requiring a deleveraging associated with that Mercuria facility in Finland, I guess an aggregation of independent risks that were uh, on a separate basis manageable once they all occurred kind of simultaneously, particularly in the space of time that 2022 led to with the collapse in cobalt price were essentially falling by a dollar a pound a day uh, at one point. Uh, that was obviously something that we we just weren't set up to deal with uh, as well as we needed to, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. Okay, so with with that hindsight in place now, oh, look, I hear what you're saying with the guys too, will you own 100% of each of these assets and 12 months time? No, clearly you need some of the bigger balance sheets um, to kind of, Help those each of those projects get get over the line, and you're you're up, kind of up against it. You've you've raised a lot of money, you've borrowed a lot of money, you've got a bit, of, you've got debt um, payments, um, and even the you know as you say the suspension costs at, at, at Idaho kind of hurting, right? Um, and small revenue, may, may, I don't know what you're making in terms well, of high gross revenue, revenue, small revenue, but recovering right, okay, would be right. hard to describe it. Finland. Right. Okay. And then obviously, you know, Brazil may be getting production 2026 is, is, is the goal, right? So, um, get, it's a tough one. With, 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 with hindsight, what would you have done differently? Would you have made such a big bet on one commodity? And quite frankly, a commodity which is kind of quite opaque in terms of its, well, people understand it in the, in the marketplace and, you know, increasing byproduct production elsewhere. So when you're looking for, when you're looking forward, would you make that kind of bet again? What would you, what could you have done, you think, just in terms of learnings for going forward? Because you're going to, let's say, the team's still together. You're backed by, you know, the institutional guys and girls. They're going to want to know, well, do we make that same mistake again? Or do we, how, have we genuinely learned? Listen, I think there's a couple of learnings. So if you look back in some of the podcasts that I gave to you very early on when I started Jedwire, what I said is I'm said I'm not going to be like other mining companies. As soon as the share price goes up, I'm just going to punch out equity and raise capital that I don't need just because I can because the share price has gone up. Uh, and we held to that with the benefit of hindsight. Should we have raised money when we were capped at a dollar per share and a plus a billion dollars to protect the balance sheet uh, and also to protect shareholders from potential dilution that actually eventually transpired when we decided to raise money uh, subsequently, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, absolutely. So I think we are going to be more opportunistic in how we look at capital markets, just not to do it irresponsibly, but with a view to um, protecting shareholders. But equally, we're actually a long way from the space of coming back to public equity markets now, because it comes back to those three assets and looking at, at private deals and getting into a position where we're essentially kind of back to the start line. I think we the way we look at risk is going to be different. So the way we look at uh, financial risk is going to be fundamentally different um, versus what we what we were, what what we considered an acceptable level of financial risk previously for a public markets company. Uh, SMP I consider to be extremely important for us because 
right now, listen, we can talk we can talk about cobalt during the interview, and we are still extremely excited about cobalt. We're dealing with the OEMs. We're looking at their order tender requirements coming through, and they're too big for us to satisfy from our existing capacity. So we're construct we're very constructive on cobalt, but equally cobalt is one of the most volatile commodities. And there's arguably a reason why there's not many operating cobalt companies. It's obviously most of the cobalt books are buried either within private trading organizations or within large public companies, uh, where it's essentially part of a diversified portfolio, which mitigates the volatility and the risk associated with, with, with the product. We're also a single asset company. I mean, I grew up before I um, joined Strata back in the IPO days, I was an investment banker and spent time on the debt size. And simplistically, I don't like debt people don't like and equity people shouldn't like single asset operating companies. And now it's, it's great that we're actually an operating asset company. We're generating 300 years of revenue. So there's lots of positive aspects of our business that perhaps many of your clients that get on this your podcast wouldn't have. They aspire to be operating companies rather than having that level of revenue. But I think having a SMP, I look at it as being, this is San Miguel Paulista, to the nickel cobalt refinery in Brazil, for you readers that are perhaps less familiar. So having nickel exposure, having just because we're bullish on cobalt, uh, I think having an additional commodity is helpful. It just means when, when the headline comes out about a particular um, new mine that's coming on on the cobalt side or when there's bad, we want to be exposed to cobalt, but perhaps not exclusively so. And I also think having two operating assets is going to be, extre- that's extremely important. We, we want to, we want two cash flow generators. We want two operating assets. We want the diversity. It sounds counterintuitive because normally when you're looking at uh, investing capital to restart a uh, facility, there's risk associated with that. You've got financing risk, you've got commissioning risk, you've got refurb risk, uh, et cetera. But I, my view is that San Miguel Paulista will actually de-risk the group for those reasons. It introduces a uh, new commodity diversifies and balances out the the existing business we have in Finland. And there's also a lot of skills that we have through our refinery expertise in Finland that we can bring to bear down in Brazil. Okay, well, let's stick stick with the risk conversation. Do you think it's time for some board changes? But you you guys, Extrata, Glencore, think big, went big, got big, but the market came and taught you you a lesson, right? Which was... Um, which was you know harsh, but that that's the reality of the market. It's a, it's a real humbler, as I said at the beginning. So, is it time for boardroom changes? Do you need people on there who can actually not just think big, but also can help you understand how to play the market, when to raise capital, how to de-risk the the market side of the equation? I think this. I mean, we're very familiar with the executive, the difference between executive and non-executive, and Peter Johnson's the chair of the board. Uh, and I'm an executive director, and so therefore that question, it's his first observation is it's his domain. What I can provide is a little context. The board has been expanding. The quality of the directors that we've been bringing on, whether it's David Isroff, one of the founding partners of Glencore, um, whether it's Daniela dos Santos, a very experienced Brazilian uh, ex-valet executive uh, lawyer. I mean, these, again, and what I've been most proud at across the course of the history of Jevois, and this applied when we were capped up at a billion dollars, is that the quality of the people we have within both management and the board is disproportionate to the size of the company. And I firmly believe that. The other observation I would make is that the board, we understand the difference between non-executive and executive, but I draw on their expertise heavily. Uh, 
These are hands-on directors. Uh, I regularly talk to David on areas that pertain to his level of expertise, given he ran the ferro, ferro frame alloy business um, for a long time for Glencore. Uh, he also was a director of Extrata. And so he sat alongside the two other Glencore appointees at Extrata, and he was really the genesis and the creation of Extrata through Sudelectra to Extrata AG and then the IPO. And so what we're going through now on the asset M&A side, drawing heavily on him there, um, as we move forwards in Brazil, Daniela is heavily involved there. Brian Kennedy is intimately involved in Idaho as we're working through some of the transition from construction to suspension. So the board is, I think the quality of the board we have is strong. Um, and certainly I don't have issues with the level of support. Like, listen, with the benefit of hindsight, would there be of actions that we would have done differently for the most, I would argue, the strongest level of our underperformance in our portfolio in terms of management delivery, i.e. the construction in Idaho? Absolutely. Uh, but I think that we've all looked at, I mean, there's, there's been an extensive review process both within management and at the board around what we, uh, what we did well, what we did poorly, and most importantly, how we're not going to repeat it. I think that's where, and I've obviously, when I say that executive management is here, there's certainly been, there have been individuals who've left the organization as a result of Idaho. And I also believe that as a business and as a company, we've taken on what we need to, to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes again. And certainly the way we're approaching San Miguel Paulista, very, very different in terms of our deployment model, our governance model, um, and the, the controls, and the, certainly the, the, the way that the board is looking at deploying and providing oversight is also going to be different in Brazil as we move forwards versus what it was in the United States. Were, were you too eager? Were you, were you too aggressive? Were you too confident? You went for these massive, well, big build projects, acquisition, trying to get and get and kind of ramp up to a kind of mid-tier company almost overnight in the sense that you've obviously had you know, Idaho going, SMP going, you obviously got the, the facilities in, in Finland, which you picked up. Um, it was it, such a strain on your balance sheet. So so again, that, that comes back to the same question. Do you think you kind of missed a step by going for big blue chip directors out of the gate who never have those kind of capital constraints in Extrata or Valet or Glencore? You know, th there's a step. It's kind of, and it feels like as a result of, of perhaps looking too far ahead there was a there was a misstep and i know you're saying like being contrite and saying look we, we've learned some lessons stuff happened but it, it, again don't do you feel given you're kind of back back down where you are now that you need people who can get you from you know here to where you want to be yes more people come in and help with balance sheet yes you know maybe perhaps you know big, bigger players with more access to to capital to take pieces of or all of you know, one one or more of these assets. So, again, it comes back to that people thing. Have, have you, do you genuinely feel that you've got the people to go from here yeah. to where you where you think you'll be in twelve months' time? Listen, I, I firmly believe that we do. I think that, and again, this hasn't why hasn't happened overnight. I mean, firstly, obviously, we've been on the ASX for fifty years, but I've been in the role now for six years. So it's been six years since we came in, and we've gradually been building out the portfolio. And I, I guess it comes back as well. Would we have done? Are there decisions with the benefit of hindsight? Would we have issued the $100 million senior secured bond versus waiting for the US government, given the largesse and the propensity that they've shown since in terms of um, supporting critical minerals? I mean, we're at, I come from a space where if I can do some, if I can, I believe in the concept of public markets, but I believe in the concept of private capital and government 
should only get involved in my mine and not displace private capital. So if I can source private capital, then we should move ahead. And I, listen, we've been constructively impatient. So yeah, we, we, we moved ahead with Idaho aggressively before the cobalt price was what we required in the bankable feasibility study on the expectation that prices would, in, would increase. They did. They increased far beyond what we required and then they went back down. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there's there's a number of learnings. I don't look at the, the, the issues we have primarily. I mean, the, the quality of the team that we have, both at management, the quality of the board, I think is robust. I think the quality of the bankers, other advisors that we have associated with the company is extremely strong. And listen, we've, uh, we, we adopt, we had a, like I said, we, we had, we made a decision that, that that constructive impatience was going to support the way that we were going to grow the business. Um, and we weren't as geared up as we ought to have been for a cobalt price collapse relative to the risk that we had in the business associated with our balance sheet. And that's where, again, I mean, we've We've adjusted the business in Finland to be to take far more risk off the table than what it was when we bought from Freeport, uh, and I think that way the way we're looking at ourselves internally and the way we're looking at moving ahead, other assets such as San Miguel is oh, we're looking at passing off risk because that the concept of a partners is really around uh, I, I just want to pass off risk. Uh, that's that's how I'm looking at the business now. So. If someone can, and it's, and it's really around partners who can add value as well. So it's not just the balance sheet. It's not just dollars. It's actually who can, who can absorb risk in a way that we can't simply because of our size. Okay. So, so, it's, so let's, again, let's, let's just kind of look at that. I, I appreciate what you're saying. You're saying like strategic partners, not just financial partners um, or, or, or passive partners. Um, where does the what does that mean for the company now? Because obviously the vision was go big, go quick, uh, and, and be quick about it. And and you were like I, I know you started two thousand seventeen. I, mean, I think I met you around that time. Um, and it, compared to most companies starting out, uh, they take a while to get anywhere near a kind of FID on on anything if they're lucky enough to get that. So it, it is it was quick, and if prices had held, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would be all, all great. But now what? What does it mean? You're going to have to give away X percent of of each or sell. one of the assets. We don't give anything assets. away. We're traders. Right. Sell. I, yeah. I, okay. But it, okay. With semantics here, but you're not going to own as much as you did before. Presumably, that when any money that is comes in will be put, put to use a mining term, put back in the ground. It's going to be put into the plant to help kind of move forward to. A, a, a position of getting into revenue and making some margin, hopefully, right? So um, it's a different sort of company to what you have been selling to date. How's that going with the, in terms of your description of what that, that will be? How's that gone down with the like Australian super that just put more money in? How's it going with the institutional guys and gals? How's it going with some of these go these government conversations that you're having in the US? What do they make of it? Are you the same, same people still? Well, I think it's, it's actually not, that much of a different sort of company and so far as uh, and I come back to the, the ball the way I described that we've got the three balls we're juggling so what I articulate to the board and what I articulate to investors is like stop thinking about a fourth ball right now like, we don't have the cash to buy a fourth ball and we're not going to issue our equity to get that fourth ball at these prices so <laughs> you got three balls and and the way I've described it and I also articulated the same in late 2022 is that I saw the, the the, the migration of these three operating 
assets that we own into operation and sustainable commercial production to be self-sustaining financially is essentially getting us to the start line. So we've all joined for a reason. We believe that there's, this is going to be a hugely exciting industry. There's going to be consolidation. There's going to be opportunities. There's going to be volatility. It's going to be really, really exciting. But we need the vehicle to actually participate in this. And that's previously we were going to own 100% of each of the three assets. Now, we, we're still going to get to the start line. But we're not going to own 100% of each of the three assets. It's the reality. But that doesn't mean that the portfolio doesn't have value. It doesn't mean that we're not at the start line and we're not still going to play the same role that we otherwise would have. It just means that we've needed to work with partners to actually get there because of the in, uh, a number of the factors which I've kind of touched on, um, macro and otherwise. Okay, so if someone does come in, they're looking at what you've done to date, they're going to probably, you, you, okay, hands up, okay, in terms of the, the balance sheet and timing of the market with regards to commodity price, that doesn't work in our favor. That hasn't worked in our favor. Operationally, in terms of the uh, one, obviously the the takeover of the, of the finished asset, the kind of you know the the build out of the nickel um, cobalt refinery and SMP um, and Idaho, can they fault you on how that has gone up until the point it hasn't gone ahead? So would they want to come in and replace your team? I guess is where I'm going with this. Listen, I think that as we've as we've as we've taken institutional investors around the sites, and I've been because obviously, I mean, people know that myself. They know James May, the CFO. But the quality of the operational team and the quality of the people we've assembled across the sites, whether it's Finland, uh, the operating team we had in Idaho, or preparing to take over from the project execution team, is is overall strong. I think we've got a, I mean, we've got good people. And importantly, we've got motivated people. And certainly we still have, uh, the level of credibility we have is extremely strong. Now, when, I, when we go through Washington, D.C., I mean, I won't name names, but we've, we've been advised that the access we're getting to the White House, the agencies, is different. I mean, even major mining groups um, that are in the top of the industry don't necessarily have the same access that Jet Wire does, because I think we're also viewed as a sounding board for ideas and perhaps in a way that isn't uh, necessarily as uh, naturally conflicted as some of the major mining groups in terms of their industry position uh, because clearly we've got a angle in through having the only cobalt mine in the United States. And I think we're also respected because I said very early on, I'm not coming through here cap in hand. And when they were saying, wait, we can help you. And I said, there's money available through the private markets. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And you're going to have a cobalt mine a year ahead than what you otherwise would. And they, they did. And they do. Uh, the challenge is that cobalt market didn't work for us in terms of pricing it, to allow us to commission that facility, but it's there. And in the industry as well, in OEMs, I think that we've got a lot of respect from the car makers. I look at Greg Young and Wade Yalman and the interaction that they have and the level of engagement they have with different level with different parts of the organisations within the OEMs. Obviously, we've been selling. People kind of forget that we've been selling battery grade cobalt sulfate for 25 years. We've been making PCAMs for over a decade. Now, predominantly 111532, but the the level of expertise and the level of uh, longevity that we have through the business in Finland, uh, most of most of our peers, at this, certainly at this market cap, they're talking about producing battery-grade sulfate um, in X years, and they've never produced bulk battery-grade sulfate. They've never had their product qualified if they've had their product qualified, they're talking about sending it across an envelope or a, a, a parcel to for qualification. They've, we've been supplying the material 
for literally 25 years. Lithium-ion batteries haven't been around much longer than we've been supplying inputs into lithium-ion batteries. So that carries, and we've been selling it to the Japanese battery sector again for, for, for that length of time, essentially. So that the relationships that we have into Japan are extremely strong. The relationships that we're building in Europe and the United States, again, extremely strong. So, I mean, again, there's a disconnect between where we are as a company, as it perceives to certainly equity markets today, and the level of access and respect that we're commanded by the auto industry, battery industry, and governments where we operate. And listen, I've been in, I think the governments, we've, we've, start, we've, we've commenced work with the Department of Defense, which I'm really excited about. Not because it's big dollars, it's an initial 15, but it's an initial 15 that then flows through into work that we're doing with Exim with regard to the mine restart, with the regard to a, an AVTM loan application that's already in place for the refinery that they wish to construct in the United States. Uh, we've got an initial 12 million euros from Business Finland. Uh, I'm heading across shortly uh, across the Brussels with our team, external affairs team, and we're sitting down with European leadership and reminding them that they actually need to compensate for the for some of the measures that the United States has put in place. So, I mean, we're getting, clearly, we're starting to get real traction with governments and you're seeing that this geopolitical dislocation of markets now, it's real. Now, I still sit here and I still complain that our customers don't, uh, they don't pay for the, they don't pay for our ESG. Like ESG has a price. Uh, I'm often reminded you're more expensive than the Chinese. So well, I don't compete with the Chinese. I don't mine it in the same way in the DRC. I don't process it in the same way as you do in China. And we're a reliable supplier that's been delivering units for 20 plus years. It's a different, this, there's a reason why we're embedded with the Western supply chain. There's a reason why there's very limited uh, other suppliers because of the barriers to entry, because of the IP, because of the technology, because of the expertise that's really represented in our business in Cochlear. And I do believe that the dislocation in terms of markets and the, the differential in pricing that's going to arise in the future is becoming more pronounced. Uh, and clearly, we just have to ride through this this current trough in, in market sentiment, which is really just Chinese-driven. I mean, China's obviously going through a significant adjustment uh, that we all hope that they'll find a way to, to navigate through safely for, for their economy and for their people. Okay, look, okay, okay, can I understand the, 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 the thematic and, and I'm sure um, there's another conversation to be to be had there in terms of how you kind of play the, the thematic that you choose to play in. Um, I just want to stick with the balance sheet stuff first of all and strategic partners, okay, because look, You've got some assets. Is it a is it a question of um, is it a question of what they're worth individually, or is there going to be one group that comes in and it's a case of some of the parts in terms of the way that they view it? And what's your negotiating power now? Now that you know, the, any any kind of one looking in here is going to be looking. Well, they're severely weakened. Cash can you know under under pressure financially. Um, now's a really good time to, you know, do what you do if you were sitting the other side of the table, which is beat you down. What defense have you got? What have you got that's going to allow you to get the best deal possible for you and the shareholders? Uh, 
I mean, you're correct. I mean, many of the imbalance we've had over the last six months, particularly those before we did the 50 capital raise in June, July, uh, were predicated on a situation or a perceived um, weakness on our part with regard to our, our options. The, I guess I'm also been focused on, I guess if I step back, I don't get hung up on takeover and risk, et cetera. My job, and I see management's job, is just to make sure that we're fairly valued in the market. That's my sensitivity. The challenge I've got right now is that everybody agrees that the assets are worth more than what they are in the share price, but equally, I'm also not, I used to highly dislike it when I wasn't sitting in this chair, I was sitting on the other side of the table when CEOs come in and say my share price is undervalued. Uh, and the answer is usually something that I shouldn't say on a recorded podcast. There's a reason why your share price is trading where it is. And there's a reason why our share price is trading where it is. Like we haven't performed as well as we should have, both within and outside of our control. And we've got the balance sheet. And so we've really looked at this step. I've taken it sequentially, and it's about alignment of interest. So you saw that we did the 25 million US convertible with Mill Street. Mill Street are are a significant bondholder of those 100 US million dollar bonds that we spoke about. There's a certain voting threshold of 66 and two thirds in those bonds. Uh, Mill Street are highly influential. Mill Street's upside as a bondholder is getting paid back the face value of their loan, 100 million bucks and earning 12 and a half percent. So Mill Street, are if, if you're a bondholder, you're bullish on Idaho, you're bullish on uh, Cobalt, hence why you hold the bonds, but your upside's capped at 12.5%. Now, by the introduction of a convertible, what it now means is that they've essentially got Javois equity exposure. So sure, the convertible, the accounts will tell you it's 80% debt. But the reality is, is that because we, it's conversion prices, 10 cents Australian per share, which obviously doesn't take much for us to get back there, it's effectively going to be equity-like exposure. And what that means is that when we're sitting down with the US government, as it pertains to Idaho, if we're sitting down with any third parties, their security over the asset is strong, uh, i.e. we can't restructure the, the asset. We can't restructure Idaho without the acquiescence of the security holder. Now, instead of looking at it from purely from a lending perspective, they've got a Jevoir equity exposure. So whatever's good for Jevoir shareholders now is also going to be good for Jevoir lenders into Idaho, which I think is extremely helpful as we sit down with the US government in the next year and move forwards with opportunities in terms of that restart and what it should look like. And also with other third parties within North America in the in the cobalt space with regard to potential business development, et cetera. So I think that alignment of interest in Idaho was really important. And Mill Street, they required that their convertible be accompanied by a small rights issue of the same amount, which I also completely understand as their position there and we and so hence the 25 convertible and 25 rights what that means is that we've got the runway now uh, we've got a 12 month plus runway uh, where we we've got the ability and that this comes back to your question on negotiating leverage and negotiating position our back isn't against the wall uh, I said our backs against the wall if we kind of focus purely on the ship if we actually look at the company's liquidity moving forwards with the business in the, the position of the business in Finland and the sheer breadth of inbounds that we've had on the assets, like we're actually in a, as I said to the management team in the board recently, we've actually got a lot of options available to us. We've got, it's not like we don't have levers. We own hundred percent of all the assets. We haven't signed any strategic long-term offtakes. Uh, and so we've got tools at our disposal in terms of how we can look at the portfolio and really minimize the 
mean, value leakage that you would otherwise obtain uh, through through some of these initiatives. And I also don't necessarily look at it in value leakage because, I mean, is it value leakage versus when we're trading at a dollar and a share and named 100% of all the assets? Sure, but that, like they, you kind of have to play with the cards you have, not the cards you want. We've got these, and this is where we're at. We're at a position now where, and we, so if I look at those three assets, like there's one that's out of, I mean, essentially out of our control, Idaho. So it's conditional on cobalt price. So either the cobalt, and I'm on record as saying it's at the cobalt price, not that for it to make money, but in terms of crystallizing an investment decision where we're extracting the, the requisite amount of economic rent out of that asset is kind of the mid-20s per pound. Uh, we're obviously sitting 10 bucks shy of that today. So either the market price has to go back, the government has to underwrite a price of that level, or a customer has to underwrite a price of that level in order to get ESG United States cobalt. But San Miguel is not predicated on a macros event. I mean, San Miguel, if that was operating today, the, the bankable feasibility study, we had 30, 35 US EBITDA based on an $8 nickel price. The nickel price is today is not $8. It was based on a nil premium of for nickel. Uh, the, the nickel premium today for Tocantins product would be selling well well for the dollar per pound, just given what's happened with that Russian invasion of Ukraine, the impact of Nurils. The class one metal market is completely uh, structurally changed in a in a, in obvious, in an extremely positive way for for assets such as San Miguel Paulista, and obviously some of the negativity associated with the cobalt market is the rise of Indonesia on the, on the nickel supply side, with MHP mixed hydroxide product coming out of Indonesia, and the fact that there's a where there's nickel there's a ten to one ratio of cobalt coming out also. But that's actually a positive for us in San Miguel because obviously that's creating a significant um, influx of supply, which is largely going through to China, but it's displacing other nickel units that were flying into China and fundamentally changing the risk associated with securing material for San Miguel Paulista. So San Miguel Paulista, if we were operating that facility today, would be the EBITDA would be significantly above the bankable feasibility study levels. And that's the attraction. We can't started ourselves I mean, we need i'm on record a number of times and i mean i'll go on record again we're not raising parent level equity restarts some go all this stuff uh, but we are looking at partnering on that asset and partnering in a way which creates an alignment of interest because it's also not just about leverage i'm trying to i'm we've got term sheets through that uh, would, would allow us to restart some go all this on 100 percent debt tomorrow my view is that that's not the answer like the answer to Jevois today is not to introduce additional financial leverage. We need to de-risk the company. Uh, and San Miguel's a great asset. I'm not going to put its ownership uh, at risk by introducing an inappropriate capital structure whereby if we have an incident or um, or there's... I'm not going to provide a lender an ability to own the asset uh, absent uh, our ability to really bring that on with a partner whose interests are aligned. That's what, I'm, that's what we're really looking for now. We're looking for partners. So it's not about finance, it's about partners. Okay. Look, if, I'm, listening, I'm listening to that, and look, it was, it's a long answer to, to, to the question. And it kind of, it kind of it's like, like a, the old adage. It's like, if you owe 5 million, you're in trouble. However, if you owe 100 million, the bank's in trouble. So do you feel that you kind of, in some ways, have got people... There who need 
you to kind of move through the phases. So when you talk about a, a, a big decision like that about with SMP, where if you've got a hundred percent debt, it's a couple of years away from getting into production. Obviously, whatever the ramp year, up is, once on, we on, once we're fully funded, one year, one year, right? It's, it's one a year, so that's good. Brief start. So it's a solid, a solid asset, and it's also looking at nickel, which is a much bigger, you know, base metal than say cobalt. Um, do you, is, is any part of you thinks, crikey, I think now would be a really good chance to kind of move away from cobalt. I hear what you're saying about critical minerals, but there's lots of miner minerals on the critical minerals list. Nickel is a, is a bigger, more well-known, more well-understood um, commodity feeds into stainless steel. And yes, there's the EV component too. So does, does all of this kind of thinking make you rethink about what you will be going forward, the type of company you need to be going forward. I think it comes back, and I don't want to just retrace back to the same observation on that 100% ownership of each of the assets, but do I want to own 100% of Idaho and 100% of Finland and then a very low percentage of San Miguel? You know what, perhaps not, because I'm actually looking to, It's not, and again, it's not because we're negative on cobalt, but we are. I, I'm a believer in the diversified model. Obviously, I grew up, with the IPO of Extrata, our whole business was predicated on diversity and predicated on achieving that premium listing and predicated on growth in a way that the majors weren't able to and step changing a business, creating positive momentum. But I believe in managing risk. And certainly if I look from a portfolio perspective, now just to be clear, we're not going to go out and do something that we haven't said we're going to do. So if you invest in Jevois, you're not going to get it. We're not going to go out, uh, buy uranium or buy zinc or buy... Uh, Something lithium's that, quite hot at the moment. Uh, lithium's, it's, uh, I'll leave that to your listeners to try and find value, but it is, uh, it, it's adjusting. I mean, <laughs> it's adjusting. Um, listen, and I think that, over, I think that the, if I look at a port, the portfolio of what we have, I, uh, with regard to those three assets, I think having a better balance of risk is not, that's eminently sensible. And I also look at the, so the way that I the way that I consider the inbound interest that we've had, it's really about crystallizing those into a form where that we can make concrete decisions, i.e. passing through due diligence, potential interested parties passing any regulatory requirements that they may have or any financing requirements to the extent that they exist. And then us having the the suite of options in the board, having those suite of options within that six month period that I mentioned, so late in twenty twenty three, where we can decide what's the right portfolio for the company moving forwards on a risk return adjusted basis and i'm actually agnostic i'm, I'm not going to sit here and make a prediction because you know it just depends what those offers look like once they've firmed up and once they come in and it could it, it but what i can say is that i, I think it's inconceivable we own 100 percent each of the assets because if we own 100 percent of each of the assets the, the only way that we can own 100 percent of the assets and bring them all into production is if cobalt goes on a tear and that's not a viable strategy. Putting our head in the sand and saying, we're just going to wait for the cobalt price to recover. That's not, even if we believe that they're, that they're, that that's going to happen over time and we are constructive on cobalt, I think it's important to maintain momentum, to maintain forward trajectory and actually to be growing the portfolio in a sensible way. Yeah, but, but you also got to understand that Kind of like uh, yeah, having a mortgage on a, on a on a house. You know, you think you own the house, you don't. The the mortgage provider owns the house, so you've got debt in there, and maybe getting that balance between getting a 
a tidy balance sheet once again trumps the kind of jurisdictional risk or portfolio risk uh, component. And yet again, given the the, the 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 path you've been on for the last sort of 18, 18 months or so, so that's why you ask. And so I, I wasn't quite sure if you answered the question or not. Would you, I get the 100% thing, but would you consider moving out of the cobalt space? You'd need to obviously explain that wide shareholder who bought into the cobalt storage, but I think they'd probably forgive you given what the, the erratic nature of cobalt pricing that they're now being exposed to and focus on something more conventional and build up again from there. We're absolutely not moving out of cobalt um, verbatim. I mean, we've got two purely cobalt assets in Idaho and Dripwire, Finland, the refinery and manufacturing business. Are we prepared to build up a portfolio where cobalt would be a smaller percentage of that portfolio than what is today 100%? Absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely the strategy for certainly myself, the rest of the board, what underpins our desire to restart San Miguel. And the way I describe it is getting to the start line. So we have three operating assets. We've got a self-sustaining business. We're in a position where we're generating cash and building cash on the balance sheets. And we never have to return to public equity markets to fund the existing business. We're working with governments and working with customers on the expansions of those assets. So again, we're in a position where uh, the, the, the reliance on public equity markets is really for that inorganic growth in years to come, such as where we came and we had support from the institutional market to spend 200 US, US million dollars in buying the business from Freeport. I think that's where we need, to, we need to get to the start line, have a sustainable business, and then I think we can look to build upon that. And will we look to building cobalt upon that? Um, arguably not, because also the expansion opportunities we have in our existing portfolio in Idaho and the expansions in Finland, and we're building a cobalt refinery in the United States uh, with the support of the US government through this initial DOD funding morphing into the Department of the Energy Loan that our application that I outlined. Uh, so we actually don't need, I mean, I think we've got industry leading, an industry leading business in cobalt. Um, the opportunities to grow beyond what we have in our existing portfolio and the options that they have, I don't think are actually as attractive as what we, we already own. So the future growth moving forwards, and this is, down the road, I guess we're very, very focused on getting these three balls into a position where, because um, again, this comes back to the valuation issue. Is the valuation of the assets today is not reflected in the share price. Now, there's a reason for that. How, how do we fix that? We fix the balance sheet. We fix that concern. We, 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 we cause institutional investors to realize, actually, this company is not coming back to market to fund the existing portfolio. If we want exposure to these assets, we're going to have to buy shares on market. And once we fix that perception and the only way we're going to fix it is by actually announcing deals um, just sitting here saying that we're going to do it isn't going to fix it we actually have to demonstrate that we're going to fix it so the, again if i think what's going to improve the value of our share price it's demonstrating that jeb Wafemler has turned the corner and that's quarter after quarter i spoke about q2 it was a good quarter and I've said to Finland, you have to do that in Q3, Q4, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, Q1. But this is what a public company requires. And what I learned in the past is that you can't, as a public company, you can't have two good quarters, one bad quarter, two good quarters, one bad quarter. That doesn't engender confidence and it doesn't, that doesn't lead to requisite valuations. And the other, so one is just operational and the other is what I call um, business development. So this is the the relationships with OEMs that I keep talking about, I think investors want to see concrete evidence of a partnership. They want to see concrete evidence of 
our ability to translate these inbounds that I've spoken to on the assets into sensible value accretive deals that also draw a line through the perceived value in equity markets. Because right now, I mean, if you look at where we're trading, the value of our assets is very, very low. So if we can do a transaction that that's, provides visibility or transparency, okay, this is the value of uh, one of these three assets, really that's disconnected. And, it, and it's visibly disconnected from where the equity market's uh, valuing that asset. I think that that sends positive reinforcement back to public equity markets that actually, not that they've got it wrong, but the value of these assets is different to where they've been perceived. And, but equally, I don't think that adjustment's going to occur just on me talking on this podcast. It's going to occur by us actually delivering those transactions and shareholders. doesn't mean we have to deliver six transactions. Uh, and we're not going to do the wrong transactions. We've been very clear. We're not going to sign off-takes. I mean, when the tide goes out in three, four years and people see the lithium trans off-takes that have been done and just see the mess that people have been scrambling to to actually just announce an off-take, irrespective of the commercial terms. And I, we see that with the negotiations we're having with OEMs. You just pull, you look at stuff and you see, my God, did, that, did someone actually sign this with a car company just to get a press release? Because clearly, the majority of the industry is just signing is signing this stuff. And that's fine while you're a developer. But let's see once you're in production in three, four years and people think they bought a lithium company and realize they actually haven't because the lithium price exposure that they thought they had is just non-existent through the contract. Or they can't produce the spec that's in the contract and they never get paid. And the car company has an obligation to do nada. Um, but, but again, I think that we've, we've adopted a balanced approach. It's not necessarily a popular approach. Many of your readers are complaining that we haven't signed those sort of contracts, but we're very fortunate. I mean, you touched on Australian super and 23%. The reason that I spent time with them when I returned to Australia and was so focused on getting them on the register is because their investment horizon is the same as ours. They've got a 10 year plus investment horizon. They want to create a company of substance. They're prepared to write out the cycles. They have obviously a significant balance sheet to support us when we want to grow. They've also obviously also got the patience uh, not to throw in the towel when we go through the cyclicality that we currently experience. And the way that we're approaching ourselves commercially, the way we'll approach ourselves on the asset base, we will do uh, everything with a view to, to value. And we're not going to kind of throw, uh, we're not going to do anything that's inappropriate from a value perspective, but equally, we're also cognizant that from where we are today, it's different from where we were 12 months ago. And we have to actually pivot and adjust and realize that we have to maintain forward momentum. And the heart of maintaining forward momentum is getting to that start line, not only 100% of each of the assets, but doing so in a way that maximizes our position and also maximizes the optionality and the value that our shareholders have into a cobalt price rise. And obviously, it seems like a long way away when cobalt's in the toilet. But as soon as cobalt goes on a tear, then you look what happens to public equity. We are the only institutional uh, cobalt stock that's up that's operating, that's generating that sort of revenue, that has real talk to the cobalt price. And so obviously it's not going to, it's not, we're, we're not banking on that happening. But one thing that it will happen in the cobalt space, as I can tell you, we've been trading cobalt for 20 years. It will happen. And with what we're seeing with that demand from the OEMs is it could be closer than what many people are currently pricing it, both the cobalt market well, and our own share price. That's what people are looking to. So it's some sustained gains in in cobalt not this kind of erratic up down up down sort of nature because that's, that's very hard for banks and institutions to back in terms of build outs as as you're you're seeing now 
Um, but also the market likewise will be perhaps a little bit more cautious when it when it does come back. So you're going to go, well, for how long? In which case that kind of probably shakes the type of investors that will come at this. You know, and that's short-term investors. So look, you, you've you recently obviously announced the closing of the uh, 50 million, 44.9 million 50. Um, well, US. It, it's 50 US. The last, uh, it's five, the last it's 50, 5 million is okay. contingent on a shareholder meeting, which occurs next week. Beautiful. Okay, 50, 50 million. So um, would you say you were fully funded to get um, these agreements over the line by the end of the year? We are. That's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. I, <laughs> I'm pleased to put it back in given the... Uh, listen, I mean, at the time when, when I said we were fully funded, we were fully funded. I, I said exactly the same on your podcast as I said to institutional investors. And the reality is we were fully funded with $85 million allocated to San Miguel. And so we dusted half of that on a capital cost overrun in Idaho and half of it repaying Mercuria after the cobalt price fell. Um, and this 50 gives us the runway to adjust the portfolio to be in a position where we can get back to that start line. Uh, and again, it's gonna, is it going to be a different start line than what it was 12, 18 months ago? Yeah, it is. Is it going to be a great start line from where we are today? Absolutely. It gets us back to the, I don't, and again, I'm not one to speculate on values, but it's going to get us, I, I just want to get back to a position where I'm sitting down with institutional investors, sell-side analysts, and having a proper debate about company valuation, i.e. Idaho's worth X and SMP's worth this and JF and Jevoir Finland's worth uh, Y. And we can actually have a sensible discussion around where, the, where, where value is relative to where the company's positioned and what the opportunities and risks are. Whereas obviously we're just so far from that space today in terms of fair valuation that we just need to get back to that position. And part of the getting back to that position is finding the partners who can assist us in ensuring that the portfolio has moved ahead in the requisite time frame, i.e. promptly, particularly as it pertains to San Miguel, and that the we just kind of de-risk. Clearly, the market is looking at our us today and saying we don't like the risk. And so it's, you can argue, is it financial risk? It's obviously a significant, significantly, in my view, financial risk associated with balance sheet, but which are we going to transfer that risk? We're going to take that risk. Um, we're going to... We're going to re- we need to reduce that risk perception, both in both in perception and in practice. And once we once we adjust that risk into a way that's commensurate with the company that size that we are today, then then we can move forwards. But the the priority in the next six months is absolutely on uh, adjusting the existing asset portfolio in a way that's commensurate with who we are today as a company. And again, that would be a great position from the five cent share price where we're currently. I don't know trading at is obviously if we get that right which i'm confident management will and the board will make the right decisions and we we do have interest in the underlying assets as i said and we do have western governments at our back through a number of the initiatives that i've mentioned then we're in a good space moving forwards not a perfect space but certainly a good space and that's where we want to get back to for ourselves and other shareholders